So you are you are not unique in this regard. Um, thank you for joining for joining us. Let me let me just introduce you. Um, like, like I said, this is a social audio app, so there, there's a live audience at the end. If you're up for it, we can take some questions. I suspect you have some readers. Um, th think of it almost as a literary reading, although we're not going to be reading the book specifically, although I might, I might quote some passages. Um, but then it also, it'll exist on as like a podcast. So anyone can listen to it whenever. And okay. it'll probably end up, uh, you know, like a text Q&A thing on, on pull requests for those who are more into text. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm fascinated by the interface between okay. virality and textuality. So we're kind of dancing in between that. But let me, let me just introduce you though. So um, is it, you probably pronounce it D Dara, right? Or no, Dara, yeah, that's right. Sarah, yeah, like Sarah. Sarah. Yeah, I, I always specifically mispronounce things in English because of my, strictly speaking, English is my second language. But um, so it's funny that, in, in, just as a side note, in Nevada, which is obviously a Spanish word, I'm seen as an outsider because I, I'm, I'm pronouncing it too correctly. I should say uh, uh, Nevada, Nevada, right? Because I'm actually you're supposed to correctly mispronounce things, and I don't correctly mispronounce things. Um, but in any case, here we are with Arhon, who wrote "People of Dead Jews." which um, is a great title, by the way. <laughs> it's such a great title. <laughs> and I think it really sets the tone to your book, which it is, I describe it as polemical, which I hope you don't, I, I think I see it as a positive connotation, by the way, something that's polemical. Because um, I, I do think you make some pretty strong statements in the book. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll just go ahead and, and, and summarize it with my take on it. And then, of course, you can furiously disagree if, if you think I'm, I've, I've captured it totally wrong. Um, well, if you've captured it totally wrong, then I've obviously failed as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a very conscientious. That's a very yeah. Well, no, it's true. Book. This is my sixth book, and like one thing I've learned is like you know you write one book and then everyone is reading like a completely different book from the, from the book you wrote, which is actually fine because they're usually reading a better book than the book you wrote. So. Right. Yeah, I know. It's not only are they reading a different book than the one that you wrote, you're a different person to them than the person you actually are, right? The author. Yeah. We we can get into that. So um, so the, the book is a collection of, I think it's 12 essays, if I'm not mistaken, right? And they're thematically similar, but often very different. And we go everywhere from the, the icy waste of Harbin, China, who, by the way, my the, the first mother of my child is from the Harbin Soskins. I think, I don't know if you went to the Soskin house or whatever in Harbin, China, but they, they were from that same family, although they, they ended up, uh, they stayed in Russia and emigrated to the UK. Um, but but well, anyhow, it's a, yeah, small, small world. Um, as well as the Anne Frank house, as well as Auschwitz and a few other things. And I guess one, one of the big themes that explains the title, right, which again is, a little, is more than a little ironic, right, is that the world seems to love the sort of monumentality or, 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 the, or, or what the history of, of dead Jews means. They're not so excited by live Jews. Right? And I think the, the funniest example, I think, comes in, I guess, the first, the first chapter, which is, which again, you very cheekily title everyone's second favorite dead Jew, um, in which everyone's first favorite dead Jew, I think is probably pretty obvious at this point, Jesus. And um, you, you cite the example of Anne Frank House, which I've been to uh, back before it was super popular. I think now there's probably hours delay to get in. Um, and you cite the example of, I believe there was, um, sorry, my cat is this per usual causing, causing a total fiasco to happen, sorry. Um, Pull request listeners at this point are very familiar with my cat causing mayhem in the middle of an interview. Um, in the first essay with Anne Frankhaus, um, you you cite the example, and I think it just summarizes kind of the book that the Anne Frankhaus had a Jewish employee who who wore a yarmulke to work, like a kippah, right? And people actually objected to the guy wearing a yarmulke to the Anne Frankhaus. And like the funniest line that I'm not going to find on the spot is, "It took the Anne Frankhaus a surprisingly long time." to think that it was inadvisable to force Jews into hiding. Right? <laughs> yes. 
So, um, um, so yeah, I'll stop there. But go ahead. Um, sorry. So you you have your cat walking around. I have a, a spammers calling me, which I realize I probably should be in a different room in my house with the door that can close. But here I am. Um, yeah. So that piece. Um, I actually wrote that the first essay in the piece that in the in the book, which is the one you're mentioning um, about, as as I call it, everyone's second favorite dead Jew, um, is actually a piece that I wrote because I was asked by Smithsonian Magazine to they asked me to write an essay for them about Anne Frank. And I got that request. And I just like felt this overwhelming sense of dread where I'm like, wow, I really don't feel like writing about an essay about Anne Frank. And, you know, I think that probably like a normal person would have you know like the logical thing to do would be to turn down this assignment (laughs) but like what i found as a writer is that like the uncomfortable moments are usually where the story is and so i sort of was like this is interesting like why don't i want to write about this um you know and i'm a person who's i mean i've published five novels about jewish history and culture um i have a phd in yiddish and hebrew literature and then you know i wrote and then I remembered that news item, the one you mentioned, where it's like, yeah, there was this guy who, like, the, the museum, they wouldn't let him wear his yarmulke to work. They were making it hi- him hide it under a baseball cap. Um, you know, the board deliberated about this for four months and then finally relented. And, yeah, as I put it in the book, I'm like, this is a really long time for the Anne Frank house to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. Um, you know, and then I was like, you know, this is like, you know, this is sort of, you know, really disturbing. And then, you know, I right. also found... Um, <laughs> You know, and that was like a new story I had remembered. Um, and then I was like, while I was sort of like going back to find it, I found like another news item about something else very similar that had happened at the Anne Frank House in 2017, um, where visitors had noticed something odd about the audio guide display where like you know there's you know they have you know 15 languages and you know it says english and there's a little british flag it says french there's a little french flag you know until you get to hebrew hebrew no flag you know and you're just like you know (laughs) these might be pr mishaps but they're not mistakes right i mean there's this erasure of jewish identity that seems to be required you know in this context and that's why so the first and i did write that piece for smithsonian and the first line of the piece which i sort of still can't believe smithsonian published was you know people love dead jews living jews not so much um you know and and what happened though was that that you know that piece came out so i was writing that that was in 2018 it came out in one of their fall issues in 2018 and it was like I don't know, like a week or so after that piece came out um, was the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And, you know, it was like within a day of that, like the New York Times called me and were like, you know, would you like to write about dead Jews again? And it's like, you know, why does this, you know, and, you know, as I put it in the book, I became like the New York Times' go-to person for the emerging literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds, right? Which is like, you know, I didn't apply for this job. And, you know, I just sort of realized at this point, like, you know, like the only thing that like most like my like my editors at so-called mainstream publications wanted me to write about was dead Jews. And I just thought, you know, and they want and there's I just realized there's like something right. they want me to say here that was like really not what I wanted to say. Um, and so that sort of was the beginning of, of this book and, you know, this whole project and the many other essays in this book. Right. And, and to be clear, I mean, you know, we're kind of joking about it and speaking effusively about what is obviously a terrible tragedy, but that is kind of the, it's not quite gallows humor, I guess, but that, I mean, this is, it's this low, it's this type of humor, whatever you call it, I think suffuses your book that actually speaks about tragedies in a deadly serious way. But then 
you're kind of poking fun at, again, the Christian narrative around dead Jews, which is different than the Jewish narrative around dead Jews, which is completely different than live Jews, which is a whole different thing. Um, and um, yeah, no, I think it's fascinating because it's one of these things that when, you, when you've pointed it out, it's like, oh, wow, I guess that's, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> like I had never quite noticed that. Um, and it, it's, I mean, you mentioned these, I had forgotten the Israeli thing, but you're right that the language thing, it's so bizarre that in a, in a museum that commemorates the reasons why Israel exists, they would sort of deny the existence of Israel because obviously in Israel, or sorry, in Europe, Israel is not a, a popular political cause. But this is exactly the point, right? You know what I'm right. saying? It's not like, oh, well, obviously they would do that. It's like, it's, this is absurd, right? I mean, this is exactly like, right. you know, it's because like the whole purpose of this museum is like, you know, we're supposed to like celebrate the humanity of the dead Jews, you know? Mm. And it's like, you know, not, not like, you know, the living Jews doing, you know, right. yucky things like, I don't know, practicing Judaism you know, or living in Israel, right? Like, like that's gross, right? But, you know, right. like, hooray, they're dead Jews and like we can get, everybody can get behind that, right? I mean, this is sort of, it just reveals like, this is exactly the hatred that caused this problem. Problem, right. I mean, this is sort of not like a secret. And I mean, that's sort of, you know, you say like it's this gallows humor, like, well, I mean, is it though? I mean, I sort of think it's just this is kind of how it is. I mean, and that's what, you know, this, you know, you mentioned that this is sort of, you know, a Christian versus a Jewish view of these, you know, these atrocities, um, you know, and look, I don't pretend to know enough about Christianity to make that kind of assessment. But I mean, I do think that, you know, there is especially like, you know, to to stay on the Anne Frank example, and we can move on to other things as well. But, um, you know, there's this line in Anne Frank's diary that is like the line that like is, gets painted on this wall of the museum and put on the jacket of the book that says, you know, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. And, you know, it's treated as though this is like, you know, it's like this like murdered Jew has offered us absolution from sin. Right. I mean, that's like why, like when we say this line right. is it right. inspires us, like what we really mean is it flatters us. Right. Like it makes us feel forgiven for these, you know, I don't know, lapses in right. our civilization that lead to piles of murdered girls. And, you know, it's sort of this, you know, and I just sort of look at how that's used. And it's just like it just grosses me out because it's like the only way you get to that being the meaning of that line is by ignoring the simple, very basic fact that. Anne Frank wrote that line about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't. Right. I mean, she wrote right. those like, you know, three weeks after she writes that line, she is arrested and deported to Auschwitz. And, you know, when, when she got there, you know, she met people who weren't truly good at heart. Right. I mean, so th there's this like absurdity that you have to ignore the reality in order to do this. And then I just like, you know, it's one of these things that like, once you see this, you can't unsee it. And, you know, and then it's like, you know, I just saw this like over and over again. I mean, and you know, the way that you have the Holocaust commemoration is one glaring example of it. Um, I have an essay in the book about the, um, the Auschwitz show that was in downtown Manhattan in like just before the pandemic, this was like, you know, this is like massive show that was like, um, well, they had 700 artifacts from Auschwitz and, you know, there was this, it, it got wall-to-wall -wall coverage um, on every media. Like it was, there were like segments on NBC about it. And in all this coverage, like basically nobody covered the fact that like, you know, usually these Holocaust exhibits are made by like, you know, I don't know, Jewish philanthropists or like, you know, these like nonprofit groups. Um, this was made by a for-profit European corporation whose business is blockbuster museum shows and you know any person who's like lived in a major city in the past 15 years will probably recognize their most successful show which is a show called the bodies exhibition which was like literally like cadavers yes. that were like you know 
dye different colors and you know cross-sectioned and um it later turned out they had gotten the bodies from the chinese government i mean it was sort of like you know who thought this was a good idea to like you know let these people do an ashen show and i mean oh they have another very popular show about the titanic and i mean as i put it in my piece i was like this is of course not a disaster porn company it's an education company who could argue against right. education, right. right? I mean, and, you know, I'm here to argue against education because, I mean, right. there's something like about the way these stories are told. And, you know, I don't know if I, I don't think I put it this way directly in the book. Um, I also have a podcast and I, I may have put it this way in my podcast where basically it's that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. You know, and there's right. a lot right. of ways we could parse that. Yeah, no, I, that's one thing it, in my, so I, part of how this conversation happened, right, as you mentioned the Tikva podcast that I was on, and I wrote these two pieces called Why Judaism Design Myself, I'm in the Jewish conversion process, and so I'm, I'm becoming an honorary member of, of Twitter, of Jewish Twitter, I guess, and, and, one of the, and in that piece, I actually, I think I sent you the link, but I, I had a footnote referencing your essay, Yes. and I think, I, I, I'm happy to go on record, I thought I was going to blow up in my face, but given that it didn't, I'm happy to go on record, and actually, just coming from the Catholic world, distinguishing the Christian and Jewish forms of narrative, I think you put your finger on something very real, which is that they are very different, actually. And in many, in many ways, right? Both what you highlight, right? Both the narrative in the narrative arc of it, Christian narratives, and I say this in a somewhat flip tone in my second Why Judaism Peace, Christianity is about happy endings, right? With the coming of the Messiah, the happiest ending of all, right? And you know, if you believe people like Tom Holland, who believe that much of Enlightenment thought is sort of post-Christian secularism, it's always driving to sort to some form of utopia or kingdom of God on earth, right? And I don't necessarily mean that in a snarky tone. I mean, obviously, things like human rights. I mean, obviously, we have progressed in many real ways, right? And so the thought that we should improve the world and get ever closer to some perfect, some state of perfection is probably a good thing. That said, it imposes a certain narrative cost. There has to be a happy ending, right? There, well, and you cite the example at the end of the of the Torah in which, well, there isn't a happy ending. It's ambiguity, right? Like the Jews get to the promised land after the whole spy fiasco and being forced to wander for 40 years and they get there and then Moses just dies and that's it. And it's like, what's that? And they don't go in, right? It's like a cliffhanger, right? Yeah, exactly. room for a sequel, which there is a sequel, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's, look, I mean, you sort of, you know, you said it in a flippant way, but like in the book, I do it, I go through this in an academic way because, um, you know, in the book, the there's a, I have an essay about narrative structures. And so this is like, you know, this is my actual academic field. I have a PhD in comparative literature and I was studying Hebrew and Yiddish literature. But like, you know, when you do a complete PhD, like you do all these courses in literary theory and stuff. And like, you kind of like wade your way through all of like literary criticism. And, you know, some point in that course, we read this book by um, the, I think I miss, I misname him as American in the book. He's actually British. Um, the British uh, literary critic, Frank Kermode. He's like, you know, mid 20th century literary critic. Um, he has a book called The Sense of an Ending, where he basically talks about like how he, he has this argument that literature is sort of based on the, is, is based on Western religion. And his argument for that is that literature, like religion, is a search for what he calls consonance, which is like the desire to live in a coherent world. And so he compares the experience of reading literature with like the way that you go through life if you are like a you know a, a religious believer, where like everything that happens is like nothing is random, everything is like some kind of sign from God, um, you know. And because the, the reality is like you know, of course, when you read literature 
it's it, nothing is random because the author has put it there, right? I mean, there are no random details, detail, details in literature. Literature is creating a coherent world. And of course, you know, I mean, I was doing my PhD in literature, in, PH, in comparative literature while writing my novels. And so, I mean, for me, this was kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, practice course like where i was sort of like you know like oh how do i write a novel like let me learn from these literary critics like what the pieces are and i was like yay i'm not just wasting my time and avoiding my dissertation i'm creating a coherent world but then the problem is like when he talks about he continues on this vein on this line of like literature and religion and you know he sort of gives this example where he says you know of course the the bible is a an example of this narrative arc you know it begins at the beginning with this um you know with the words in the beginning and it ends it with a vision of the end with the words even so come lord Jesus. And, you know, first my thought is like, well, you know, that wasn't how I thought the Bible ended. Okay, fine. But like, you know, to each his own. <laughs> but then I sort of like realized like, you know, this is actually kind of a fundamental thing where he's talking about this idea of the narrative arc, where, yeah, there is this expectation that there's this narrative arc in a story where you end with some kind of resolution and where you end with, um, you know, and, and where there's there's where there's no ambiguity in the end. And that's something that, you know, and, and it's funny because I had uh, I start that essay with like a note that I had gotten once from a reader um, of one of my novels. It was uh, my second novel, The World to Come, where one of the characters is a pogrom survivor. And this person was like, you know, dear Miss Horn, I was reading your book and I got to the part about the horse being beaten. And, you know, I threw the book across the room. You know, sure. I really think, you know, the purpose of literature is so that we can laugh and enjoy and be uplifted, you know, like this is not sending an uplifting message, you know, you know, best wishes, Denise. And so like, I wrote, I did not, I wrote, but did not send a reply to Denise where I was like, you know, dear Denise, sorry about the horse. It was a, actually a reference to a scene in crime and punishment, which is another book you might want to avoid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is like the best, it's like the best scene in crime and punishment. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, I mean, in crime, but ironically though, crime and punishment actually does what I'm sort of pushing against, which is it does sort of like tie everything up at the end with like, hooray, Jesus. Right. Um, you know, like, all right, problems are solved. Right. Hooray, Jesus, I was saved. But like, think, but like you think about it, it's like, that is what we, you know, as you know, English language readers expect of a story, right? There's this expect, expectation, like even the, like the language we use to talk about plot structure, like, you know, we want the good guys to be saved. Right. Like if, if it's not OK, if it was a little more sophisticated, right. then maybe then we, you know, we want the main character to have an epiphany, you know, or we want these, you know, there should at least right. be a moment of grace. I mean, these are like very Christian terms. And what was, you know, and I, I would have sort of like not really cared about this, except right. that I was reading Hebrew. I was studying Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And what I noticed was like the writers who were writing in these Jewish languages, they never give you any of those things. Like, you know, you read like Yiddish novels, like nobody's ever saved. Right. <laughs> right. Like same in most like modern Hebrew right. too. Like, you know, like nobody ever like, you know, nobody ever like realizes anything. They never have an epiphany. Like, you know, they never, uh, you know, they're certainly never, um, you know, nobody ever gets a moment of grace. Instead, it's like this very different like structure where it's about, um, Endurance and resilience is what I usually would see in these kinds of stories. Like it was about like right. characters who were saving, maintaining their personal integrity through a variety of circumstances. Right. And it was more about like how they weren't changing in a way. Right. Or um, that would be one version of it. Or like it was about this idea of resilience. Right. Or, or like what psychologists now call like post-traumatic growth. Right. It was like what happens when you move through calamity. Right. And what are the options of what are the options for post trauma so like that was like a lot of what i was reading and it just it was just so different from what was expected so yeah i mean i do think that we have this innate um you know in english-speaking culture this innate um idea of a narrative arc that does come from christianity but like i said like i don't you know i'm sure that you know someone who knows a lot more about christianity could could take me to task on this and and that would be you know 
enlightening for me but it is like it's very glaring when you're reading you know when you you read in jewish languages and then you also read in non-jewish languages like the difference in the literature is very it's very noticeable yeah no i think that's right i think like you said i think religion is the grand narrative we try to give to life right and then in some sense you know regular literature that's non-religious and some emulates those same forms and again i i hate to personalize it so much but it's when you're converting the other way, right, from Christianity to Judaism, a lot about Christianity that you took for granted becomes more glaringly obvious, right? And so, I mean, I'm struck, you mentioned earlier the notion of forgiveness, right? And like the Anne Frank statement, in some sense, is Christians forgiving themselves about, the, you know, the horrors of the Holocaust. And I think that's, the Christian versus Jewish attitude to forgiveness, I think, is also very different. Um, Mayor Soloveitchik, who you're probably familiar with, a uh, very prominent rabbi, for those who aren't familiar, he, sure. he writes for Mosaic, and I, I think he, he does a series for the Tikva Fund. Um, he wrote a piece in 2003 that he probably couldn't get away with writing today called The Virtue of Hate. And it, it's kind of a clickbaity title, to be honest, but it's, it's just the differing, the differing vision of forgiveness in, Juda, in Judaism versus Christianity. I think he cites the example of Simon Wiesenthal at one point, like, did the thought actually ask prominent intellectuals and religious people if they could go back and forgive I, for, I forget who we took as like the emanation of evil, literally either like Hitler or Mengele or one of these people, right? Like, could you forgive them? And he just seemed like the Christians were way more ready to forgive, right? And while um, the conclusion that Soloveitchik comes, and I'm paraphrasing a very long piece here, is that, you know, the Jews kind of would not, <laughs> would not, right? And, um, and it's a different, it, it's, um, and, and I think a lot of the, and, and I hate doing this because it, it, it plays on a lot of tropes of misunderstanding between Christ, Christianity and Judaism. But I think a lot of like when the Western world, I'm not, I'm not going to drag in every hot button issue there. When you, when, you, when, you, when you look at things like Israel, right, and the way that Israel's actions are parsed by like the Western world, I think there's also like a narrative mismatch between uh, the Christian and, and the Jewish worlds and what's considered moral behavior or what is the, the end goal? And, and I, I just decided a completely stupid fucking example of something that's not high literature, but I think it expresses it. I was rewatching Munich, this like kind of cheesy, uh, you know, middle brow Spielberg film about um, Project Wrath of God, which was the, what Golda Meir authorized, which was basically assassinating all, the, all the, the Black September terrorists in the Munich Olympics, which for those who aren't familiar, there was this horrible attack, lots of Jews were killed, and the Israeli state, just went out and tried to assassinate as many of them as possible, right? Which I think, again, is, is not a very Christian take on things. And at the very end, you have the putative leader of the mission and you have his Mossad handler, and they're talking about it in front of a recreated uh, World Trade Center towers, right? Because this is happening in the 70s in Brooklyn. And, you know, Avner, I think, who's the leader, says, what did we accomplish with all this, right? That, what, what did we actually do with any of this? Like, he's looking for closure, a happy ending. And the Mossad agent responds, well... Uh, you know, I trim my nails, but I know they'll grow back, right? <laughs> like it, it's, this very, it's this very, there is no happy ending. There's just re resilience and struggle and trimming nails and, and surviving to the next day, right? And, there, and, that, and that's it. Like, that's the end of the movie. And uh, I, I, I don't yeah. know if that resonates with you, but it, I, I, it took, I took it as another example where there's, that's the Jewish ending to like, or the Jewish answer to a potential Christian happy ending. Um, yeah, well, I mean, look, a, a few things to say about that. One is like, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, forgiving, you know, or would you be able to forgive, uh, you know, Mangala or whatever? Like, well, I mean, there's actually like a like halachic answer to that, like within Jewish law, which is like, you can't forgive someone for something that they didn't do to you. Right. Like it's right, I can't right. forgive somebody who did something to somebody else. Like, yeah, well, I mean, sure, that's like you should be, you know, it's pretty easy to 
forgive somebody like when I wasn't even involved, right? I mean, that's not, you know, right. no, the only like just halakhically, like in, in within Jewish law, like you can only forgive somebody who, first of all, they have to apologize to you and repent in order for you to forgive them. You can't just like, you know, well, I don't know. Well, I, I, you probably could forgive them if they didn't, if they didn't do that process, but like they're supposed to apologize. It's on them to apologize to you and to repent, which, you know, like that's a, demonstrate that they have changed but then it's like you forgive them but this is like if they did it to you right. well if you murdered somebody they can't forgive you right. because right. they're dead right. so like you know this right. isn't right. like you know this isn't like you know some sort of like you know like hypothetical game right this is like you know if like that's the problem with like murdering people right. is they're dead right i mean they can't you, you can't like go and change your mind about that right i mean right. so you know and you know and then also like you know there's you know, there are, so there are things that, like, you know, it would be up to God to forgive. But, like, that's, like, I mean, you know, it's not, I'm not going to go and tell somebody else that, you know, I forgive them for something they did to some third party. Like, how do I have any authority to do that? Like, well, how am I even part of this conversation? Like, it makes no sense. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, so it's well, not that there's no such thing as forgiveness. It makes no sense. It's not, like, but, like, you know, there kind of isn't such thing as a forgiveness from... I mean, you know, and now I'm going to, you know, I'm sure there are people who know more about Jewish law than I do, that there's some possibility if the person is dead. This is something people who, like who aren't me have thought about. But like, I, 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 it's not somebody else's role to forgive that. Well, but, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. So, yeah. Well, but, but that's, but just to be clear, that's the Jewish view, right? In Catholicism, that, that would not be true, right? That, like, you can go, you can go around women. forgiving people for stuff they did to somebody else. Well, well, yes. When you, <laughs> when you, well, when you, how when you, is that okay? Wait, that's well, well, I, well, I don't want to turn this into a whole Christian. Wait, if somebody Jewish, like if someone attacks me, you can go forgive them for attacking me. Well, no, no, no not not me. But if if you go the sacrament of reconcilia- reconciliation within the Catholic Church, and again, I'm obviously not a Catholic theologian, but just at the very pedestrian level of going to you know catechism class when you were a kid, you you go in and the priest forgives you, and the person you offended isn't part of that exchange. Just to be clear, <laughs> typically, yes. Wait, really? <laughs> Wait, you don't you don't have you don't have to make amends with that person? Well, I, I mean, as part of the penance that the priest assigns you, potentially, and certainly, if there's something you can still do that would right the wrong, maybe. But it's not the notion you're thinking of teshuva, <laughs> like before Yom Kippur, apologizing to everybody, and in some sense collecting your wrongs and getting no, that do, that doesn't happen. I mean, we're speaking for what's your responsibility to do that, right? I mean, and also like you know, you have to approach these people. And, you know, it's not like, you know, is there something you can do to, I mean, you know, yeah, a lot of situations, the person does not, I mean, even if they're not dead, like there are a lot of situations where there might not be a, a, a way to compensate them or, but, but I mean, is, you know, you ha- you're again, obligated is, to attempt to do it. I mean, that's sort of, wow. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> no, no, but, I mean, but that's the whole, and again, we're, we're speaking very simply and bluntly here. And there's probably yeah. And I'm sure there are people who are like, but like when, but when like an evangelical today. says, Jesus died for your sins, that, that's what it means. He's the Lamb of God who, in some sense, sacrificed himself for your sins. Which means that it, again, there's. I, I, I mean, I see the appeal. Right, <laughs> but it, it's there's like a there's like a sin middleman, so to speak, to, to use very crude language. It's not. Wow. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No. I mean. Yes. Well. So that seems to be what's happening. Then. I mean, that that actually does validate a lot of what I sort of argue in the book. Although I don't. Right. I don't argue. In, I want to be clear. Like to. You know, potential readers like this is not a book about theology at all um this is really not um right. know, this is sort of just like you know and, and you know you said it's a polemical book i actually you know i actually don't think I, i'm not really a polemical right i mean like i'm a novelist right? i mean this is my own my first nonfiction book i wrote five novels before this um you know i you know i'm sort of uh 
I really see myself as a storyteller. Like I'm not like when I say I'm not a polemical writer, like, like, I don't think I'm good at arguing. Like I'm not like, I've never you know won an argument at a dinner table or anything like that. Like I'm not that person, but like what I am interested in doing is like, as I said, like bringing, you know, bringing the reader into the uncomfortable moments with me. Right. And it's like, when I say it's a storytelling experience, it really is like, I'm bringing you as the reader with me into these uncomfortable spaces. And in a sense, I'm doing that in order to explore what it is that makes me uncomfortable. Because as a writer, like I don't plan my books in advance. I don't plan my essays in advance. I don't really have a way of, um, I, I don't really, I don't really have, a, um, I don't go into it knowing what I'm going to say. I'm exploring that as I'm, as I'm moving through this, uh, you know, through this journey. I'm wondering if I should move to a different room since my phone keeps ringing and I can't seem to get. No, okay. it's okay. I, right, think, cool. I think it's fine. No, no, it's fine. I, I do have I do have a couple of questions just to switch it up slightly yes. to go from serious theology of forgiveness and sin and yes. Holocaust and Nazis and Israel. Um, you have one very amusing essay, which I think people will find curious, which is your name did not change at Ellis Island, right? No, it didn't. <laughs> and so maybe um, right the the, th the the thing here is that like, and I've heard this actually, right? This like popular folklore that oh somebody misspelled something at Ellis Island, and it, it's funny. I, I kind of knew this because I know, for example, Fiorella Laguardia one of the early mayors of New York was actually one of the inspectors or whatever intake people. And he spoke like eight languages and like the thought that they would screw up names like, Oh, it's just as Bozo yes. sitting there misscribbling names is actually So I'll stop there, but, but go ahead. Why is it that your name did not change at Ellis Island? Yeah. yeah um, so yes, one of my pieces in the book is about this, this, what I call this legend, which is a legend in American Jewish, in the American Jewish community. It exists in other communities too. Um, I mean, there's that scene in Godfather 2 at Ellis Island also, right? right? But but it has a right. different resonance in the Jewish community. So yeah, there's a, the, the legend is basically like, you know, oh, my name was Rogashevsky or some other Jewish sounding thing. And, you know, the guy at the desk at Ellis Island didn't understand my accent. So he just wrote down Rogers. And that's why my name is Rogers now. It's like this, like, you know, there are many families that have right. some version of this story. It's never happened. It's a total myth. And like, you know, people are like, how did you find this out? Like, this isn't like, you know, my original research here. Like you go to Ellis Island, like it's a national park. They announce this on public tours. Nobody at Ellis Island ever wrote down an immigrant's name. Right. They had ships manifests that had the people's names on them. They were never like right. recopying or recording people's names. They were working from a ship's manifest. Um, the ship's manifest was compiled at the port of origin. It was compiled from state issued documents, same like it would be today from like passports and things like that. Um, you know, it was extremely, you know, any errors that the ship that the people compiling from the shipping company compiling the list would make, it was the kind of thing you'd lose your job over for making an error because anybody who was improperly documented had to be sent back to Europe at company expense. So, you know, also, as you mentioned, Fiorello LaGuardia, like people, immigration inspectors at Ellis Island, like these people were not rent-a-cops. These were highly trained people. They were, had to know a minimum of three languages. Other um, translators were circulating auxiliary, auxiliary interpreters to ensure competency. The languages that um, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe spoke in this era were far from obscure in this context. Um, you know, nobody had a problem with anybody's name. And also, then we, we the reality is that, like, we have the court records of tens of thousands of court records from New right. York State, I'm sorry, New York City Civil Court for the decades of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s of Jewish immigrants going to court and voluntarily changing their own names. Um, so, you know, it was amazing to me. So this is like not like something that's like, 
you know, a disputed, like, it's funny, I once wrote about this and there was some, I was like, I was kind of, um, you know, pushing back against some other person who had written an article where they're like, you know, some people's names may have been changed at Ellis Island, though this is disputed. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of like saying the lunar landing may have been fake to impress the Soviets, though this is disputed. It's not disputed. This is just a reality. So, but what I think is interesting is how otherwise educated people are so attached to this legend that like every time I've spoken about this publicly, like I get mobbed by people, like whether I give a talk people. Yeah. I get mobbed by people. I get mobbed in the comments. If it's something I write, like people are all like, you know, you're wrong because, and then they insert some like, you know, 500 word anecdote about their great grandfather. Um, So. But one thing, but one thing you glossed over a little bit, which I think is missing from the conversation. Otherwise it doesn't make sense is that, the court records, the court records, the name changes. You make very clear in the essay to point out people were changing it because they felt their name sounded too Jewy and they, they feared suffering from anti-Semitism. So they were willing to assimilate and change whatever hard to pronounce yes. a Polish Jewish okay. name yes. to Harris or Smith. Like you meet all these yes. Jews with last names like Ross and Harris and Smith, and it's like how the hell did that happen? And it's because their great their grandparents just changed it so that they would pass basically. Yes. So. Well, yes, exactly. So yeah. this is what, and, and I want to be clear, this is not my research. This is, um, there's a um, historian named Kirsten Vermeglech who wrote a great book called A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, um, which, where she like goes and read, and so the, I want to be super clear, like, I'm not, this is not, this is her research, not mine. Um, you know, she like went and like read all these, you know, court records from these people. Right. And, you know, first of all, the few things that she discovered, one is that like, you know, I mean, yes, this legend exists in other ethnic groups too, but she says, when you look at these court filings, it's like the overwhelming majority are Jewish sounding names. Um, and, you know, she's like, she's like, you're, I'm, I'm sitting there, the records and it's like, it's just pages and pages and pages of Cohen's, um, you right. know, and then the other thing she talks about is, you know, how these people, you know, you had to give a reason for why you were changing your name in the record. And almost none of them mention anti-Semitism as the reason. Instead, what they say is like, you know, my name is difficult to pronounce and spell. Right. Right. Or it's a foreign sounding name. Right. Right. But it's like, you know, well, I mean, there are a lot of names in America at this time that were difficult to pronounce and spell and that were foreign sounding names like, I don't know, Vanderbilt, Roosevelt, you know, Lindbergh, um, you know, Juilliard, (laughs) you know, uh, LaGuardia, Joe DiMaggio. I mean, like, you know, that's not what's happening here. And that's what that's the piece that I find really interesting is that basically this there's two layers of burying the reality here. One layer is with the, what these Jewish immigrants, and it's not even, a lot of times it's not even Jewish immigrants in those court filings. It's their children. Lots of times it's like a generation. I mean, a lot of these filings are like a generation after Ellis Island closed, Um, you know? And so these are people who are staring down a reality where like, you know, it's funny. I talk about this in my podcast adventures with dead Jews. I have an episode that I just dropped about um, the gentleman's agreement, which is this like movie in the 1940, in the 1940s about American anti-Semitism. You know, today we talk about anti-Semitic incidents in the United States, like in the middle of the 20th century, it wasn't about incidents, right? I mean, this was about like Jews couldn't get a job. Right. Right. Or like you couldn't rent an apartment, right? Like you couldn't get into college. Your kids are being bullied at school. I mean, this was not like, an incident this was like you know daily pervasive reality and i mean these were people who were just like staring down this reality that they couldn't ignore and you know and and what i think is interesting is like but they were hiding that because it was too painful 
because you know they came right. to this country from places where this this reality of anti-Semitism was impeding their their possibilities in life, and the whole reason they came here was to avoid that. And then it's like to come here and then sort of face some version of it again is like devastating, right? So like you have to sort of deny that that's right. happening, and so you see two layers of that denial. Right. One is in the court records where it's like, oh yeah, my name is difficult to pronounce, like. Is there more than one way to pronounce Lefkowitz? Because I don't think so. Um, you know, and then it's like, <laughs> right. so we're lying about it there. And then the next lie is what you tell your kids or your grandchildren, right. where it's like, oh, a funny thing happened at Ellis Island, right? And then it becomes like, yeah, you know, yeah. our name was changed at Ellis Island, right? It sort of becomes this like cutesy story. You know, that cutesy story is protecting it's these people are protecting their children from psychological damage. Um, you know, and that's the piece that I find really interesting. Right. Like in the book, I'm actually, I, I actually, and that essay, I'm like, to all the, I, I say like to the people who made up this legend, thank you. Right. Because I feel like I'm, I'm personally a beneficiary of this kind of legendary thing where like, you know, I'm, I grew up not thinking that American anti-Semitism was a thing. And one of the reasons I grew up with that is because, you know, generations of American Jews before me, like presented it that way to their descendants and you know that was a that was a strategy but what i think is really interesting is how like you know these otherwise educated people who attack me when i bring this up even though like you know these are like educated people skeptical people these are not people who like you know would go down internet rabbit holes about QAnon or whatever like whatever like these are not like people who believe bs but they are so attached to this that they cannot imagine that oh the story i heard in my family is a lie because it's there's an emotional work that's being done by that story. That story is giving them something that they right. need. And that's the part that I find like, you know, it's you know really kind of moving and, and also, you know, disturbing too. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It reminds me, you mentioned Rosenberg. I was um, I went to the Tenement Museum in Lower East Side. I used to I used to live in a tenement in Lower East Side actually when I was working in Washington, <laughs> believe it or not. And I went to the Tenement Museum, which was nicer than our apartment building, by the way. We went there, it's like, wow, that's pretty nice. Like uh, <laughs> how much did they pay for rent? Although of course the conditions that we're living in were not comparable. But um, one of one of the things they mentioned was the name change thing, and that I guess I don't know how true this is, but I guess there was micro changes. The more German sounding your name sounded, the more accepted you were among even among Jews, actually. Yeah. And so that people would often change yeah from whatever the Russian version is of Rosenberg to Rosenberg to seem as if they were German Jews, because that would seem like a higher class of Jew than those who came from, yeah. from the shtetls. Uh, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that it, it also other other groups have the name ritual. My family also has a uh, name lore to it, although it's not, I think it's probably true. As you know, well, as may or may not know, in the Hispanic world, right, there's always two surnames. Because, well, like in Russian literature, if you read Dostoevsky, there's a patronymic and a matronymic, right? And it's the same thing in the Spanish-speaking world, except I think the Soviets did away with the two-last-name thing in Russia, but that was never done away with in in the Spanish-speaking world. So if if you go to Spain, like the form actually literally has two-last-name slots for it. And Americans who go and get a a visa or whatever have to invent a second-last name. And they usually either dupe their last name or they use the middle name as the (laughs) first-last name or whatever. But you can't leave the form empty because it's considered like... There, there's no N.A., right? So you have to invent a second last name. And anyway, it's going the other way when my parents who were, were Cuban exiles who fled the revolution and all this, right? And, you know, they came under the, the Cuban Refugee Act and they became citizens. My father has a story that uh, they had settled in Chicago. They went to the Chicago Federal Immigration Office or whatever. And there was, you know, I, I think hiring standards had perhaps degraded since the Ellis Island days when it came to, like, intake of immigrants by the 60s. And the woman's like, no, you can't have two last names. Like, this is, this is impossible. <laughs> and my father, because, of course, each name comes from a different branch of the family, right? So to lose one last name yeah, yeah, would be right. to snub yes. either the mother or the father. And he's like, 
I can't go home and tell my mother that like I dropped her name because the form didn't fit it. You've got to, you've got to help me out here. She's like, well, you can put a hyphen on it if you want. And it's like, okay, that's it. We are Garcia Martinez. We didn't dump the Martinez yeah. and there it is. But anyway, it was a very different naming thing, but it's, um, yeah. But it's a similar in that like, right. it's like, you know, this person is pretending like you've never encountered this before. Like, there's like literally right. like a billion people in Latin America. Right. True. But even to this day, people get the two name thing wrong and they think I get called Mr. Martinez all the time, which by the way is wrong. The, the patronymic is the first last name. That's if you, that's your real last name. The other one's kind of like an extra or they think Garcia is a middle name or something. Anyhow, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing in the, or just randomly I went, I know this is narcissistic, but I went when, when my book came out, I went to the bookstore to look up my name and I'm like, Oh, I'll look in G. And it's like, it's not there. It's like, what the hell? It's like, oh, no, it's in the M section. But that's weird. It should be in the G section. It's like, no, we, we only do that for Garcia yeah. Marquez. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you win a Nobel Prize, they'll get your name right. If you don't, forget but, um, it. Uh, Mario uh, Vargas Llosa, they do him too or no? Yeah. Is, he, uh, is he under a V? Or? Oh, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't know, actually. I, 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 I don't remember if he won a Nobel Prize or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did. I think and he so did. He be, yeah, I think if you win a Nobel, you get, you get listed under your first last name. <laughs> Exactly. It's like yeah. it's like in Berkeley faculty. I was at Berkeley. Like, to get a parking spot on the on the campus, you actually need to win a, a Nobel Prize. There's actually a Nobel Prize <laughs> spot. Otherwise, you get no parking. Nice. So it's the same thing with uh, Hispanic lessons. Cool. Well, we had a great combo. I, I did have one last question, just to get slightly more serious again. I, I don't know if we're going to lose people and be a downer. But um, I mean, you're, you're heavily involved in, in Jewish life and all this. And um, it's interesting, again, converging into that Jewish world there's like a Jewish version of every debate. And then there's like a, a non-Jewish version of the, of the, of something about Jews, right. Which is what you talk about, right. Of how the Christian world. Yeah. And so I, you know, I often think about this piece, you probably read it because it went viral by Lyle Leibovitz of tablet about like them and us and the sort of predicament that American Jews are in. And I don't know if you want to talk about this or even have thoughts about it, but you know, it's, it does seem to be the case that, I mean, getting back to your Anne Frank thing, right? Israel is, is now this very polarizing issue. In the past, you used to have Democrats who were pro-Israel, and there was always that but. Well, you know, I don't agree with everything that Israel does, but they have a right to exist, right? There was that sort of but. And his claim is that but sort of is sort of disappearing, and it puts American Jews in a weird bind of like, do you openly support Israel? Do you just say, no, I'm not a part of that? Like, and just like just as a random thing, and again, I know it's another author, so maybe you want to, I don't know if you want to say anything about it, but like Sally Rooney, for example, rejecting her book be translated into Hebrew, right? Which is many ways you could parse that, but I, I find it a very telling thing. It's kind of like going back to your example, the Anne Frank House not putting the Israeli flag next to the Hebrew thing, right? And so I'm just curious, what, what does that leave American Jews? What, what does that leave Israel in, the, in the, the broader Western mind? I don't know if you have thoughts about any of that. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about all of that. <laughs> so, um, you know, let me put it this way. You know, I, as I mentioned before, it's like, you know, it's like we love, you know, it's like at the Anne Frank Museum. It's like we love dead Jews, but not like, you know, living Jews doing, you know, yucky things like living in Israel or practicing Judaism. So, you know, right. I think that like we, you know, we, there's this, there's this editing that's going on where, um, you know, and this is what I talk about. So in my, my podcast is called Adventures with Dead Jews. Um, it's, uh, it tells different stories than the ones in the book. But um, my last episode is about this uh, gentleman's agreement, and it's, which is this 1940s movie, where it's basically there's this um, premise that, like, non-Jews are allowed to edit and decide how Jews are allowed to be Jewish. 
right? right? And so this actually, there's, and, and it's, it is a form of anti-Semitism, this need to tell somebody else how they're allowed to be. And this, um, the way I describe it in the book is that there are, there's sort of like two forms of anti-Semitism that we can identify by the Jewish holidays that celebrate triumphs over them. So there's Purim. Well, yeah. Well, so there's Purim anti-Semitism and Hanukkah anti-Semitism. So Purim anti-Semitism, and this is based on the biblical book of Esther, where there's like, you know, the, in the holiday, the Jewish holiday Purim, which is based on the story in that book, um, which is about, it's like, basically, you know, there's like, you know, the genocidal, the, the genocidal maniac who's just like, kill all the Jews are different. And, you know, therefore, you know, whatever, contaminating the blood and soil, and therefore, let's kill all the Jews. Like, this is like, you know, yeah, it's like, you know, the Nazis, suprem- white supremacists, like, you know, this is like the unambiguous, like, you know, you're a nut right. job, and you're a genocidal maniac, and it's like, kill all the Jews. Like, you know, it's not hard to understand this. So that's Purim anti-Semitism. That's like, you know, the schmo who goes into a shul and blows people away. Okay. But then there's Hanukkah anti-Semitism. So the holiday of Hanukkah, which, you know, is in the book of Maccabees, which is apocryphal. It's not, it's outside the Hebrew Bible. Um, But it's, so it's because it's post. But inside the Protestant Inside inside the Protestant (laughs) yes, because these are like, you know, wait to the party. The Hebrew Bible is uh, canonized long before that. So um, this is about the, this like um, Hellenized, it's, it's Syrian Greek regime. It's basically a Hellenistic regime that takes over, that conquers Judea in, you know, this is like the year 165-ish BCE. And basically it says, they don't say we're going to kill all the Jews. Instead, what they say is Jews are awesome, provided you get rid of the following things. And it's like, we are object to, you know, circumcision and celebrating the Sabbath and studying Torah. Those things, you know, don't jive with like our view of the world. So, those things don't do those things but otherwise jews are great okay so like what then of course happens is like well i mean you know basically like the the hanukkah anti-semitism where it's like jews are awesome our only problem is like you know the following like list of things that are we don't approve of about jewish civilization and so you know We merely publicly request that Jews flush thousands of years of Jewish civilization down the toilet in order to win the grand prize of being allowed to live. For a few years, maybe. Because, spoiler alert, Hanukkah anti-Semitism generally turns into Purim anti-Semitism. They they end up killing the Jews anyway, right? So, um, yeah. So, these are, like, the two patterns. And the problem with Hanukkah anti-Semitism is it requires that Jews participate in their own humiliation, right? And then I have it. I talk about this in the book in my article, my article, my my essay about... um, about I have an essay in there about um, a Soviet Yiddish actor um, who is, um, you know, who's performing in the Soviet regime and who gets executed by Stalin in the 1950s. And it's sort of about the Soviet regime had this idea of like, you know, Hanukkah anti-Semitism, where it was like, you know, Jews are awesome as long as they're not supporting Zionism or practicing Judaism or studying Hebrew. And, you know, in the process of, the, and they're like, you know, we're not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Zionist. And then the process of like not being anti-Semitic and just being anti-Zionist, they managed to, you know, imprison and persecute and torture and murder like tens of thousands of Jews. So that was, you know, and, and then also like disseminate this concept to all their client states in the developing world. So, you know, so this is like, there's, I, I'm calling bullshit on this is basically what I'm saying is that like, you know, this idea that like there's some, there's some way that you're going to edit your Jewish identity to satisfy the people around you is itself a really hateful demand, right? Because like this, this is, this is at the heart of it, right? Is 
you know, we have this lip service that we pay to the concept of diversity in this country, where, you know, we think that like diversity means you get a lot of people together who are from a lot of different backgrounds, but all think the same way. Right. And as opposed to like actually being curious about other people's, you know, cultures, traditions, beliefs, experiences, histories, right. That would require like actual curiosity about people who aren't you. It would require like actual engagement with other people's beliefs and traditions. And that's what I think is so interesting right. is that, you know, like there, I feel like there's this way that we've been taught not to be bigoted. Like that is, you know, in the, the sort of way we were taught in this country to not be bigoted is that like, is by being told like, you know, Oh, you know, don't, you shouldn't hate Jews because Jews are just like everybody else. Well, I mean, the problem with that is that like Jews have spent 3000 years not being like everybody else. Right. Right. Like, as I put it in the book, like uncoolness is kind of Judaism's brand. Right. right? Like, which has been true for like, you know, 3000 years since, right. like, you know, we were like worshiping a bossy and unsexy, invisible God. Right. Like, we've never been cool. And so, like, what you're basically saying when you're like, right. Jews are, you know, we shouldn't hate Jews because Jews are just like everybody else. What you're basically saying is it's fine to hate them if they aren't just like everyone else. And that's where and, you know, and so and I think that what you see now like the different forms of anti-Semitism in the United States now are usually like those hatred against people who are, who, you know, are really participating in what is really parts of Jewish life, which is like, you know, Zionism is not just a modern political movement. This is like at the core of Judaism from the time of the Torah. Right. Um, You know, so it's like, if you're asking someone to edit that away, like you're asking a lot. Right. Um, And then it's the same thing with like, you know, you're basically asking people to edit away, Jewish religious practice, right? That's another element of that. Like, you know, like the, you know, the ancient Greeks were like, you know, there were, there were Jewish boys in ancient Judea who had their circumcisions reversed so that they could, you know, perform in the games in the stadium or whatever, because, you know, that was what mattered to that society. Like, you know, you weren't allowed to participate in that society unless you were like, you know, playing sports in the nude. Right. So I think that there's this demand that's placed on Jews that they erase themselves. And so, you know, and, and we, we hide it behind these conversations where we pretend that it's about, we pretend it's about some larger value. Right. Like, you know, that's why like, you know, Oh, I'm boycotting Israel because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, okay fine but then it's like you know oh i'm pretending you know or like we see like here's a place where i really saw this and i talk about this in the book um the last chapter of the book is about these attacks on the hasidic community that happened just before the pandemic right um and what was amazing to me was in reading news articles about those attacks um these are like you know lethal attacks like you know we're talking about a shooting attack at a grocery store in jersey city there was an attack in upstate new york town of muncie which is a town with a large hasidic population where somebody walked into a crowded hanukkah party with a four foot long machete and just started like slashing people um i could not find a news article about those attacks that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the article um so like for example in the jersey city one you know they're all every article was like you know you know this hasidic community was you know gentrifying a minority neighborhood which like i mean First of all, like, you know, these are highly visible members of the world's most historically persecuted minority, number one. Number two, like, is there this murderous rage against gentrification? Like, are people walking into blue bottle coffee with, like, automatic weapons blowing away white hipsters? Because I don't <laughs> see that happening. Like, I don't think this is about gentrification. Um, you know, or then, like, with the Muncie example, people were like, well, you know, there was this zoning battle between this Hasidic and non-Hasidic communities in this town tensions have been high because of the school board battle and i'm like you know 
do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? Because silly me, I left mine at home and I went to the last school board meeting. And I'm just like, you know, these articles are sending a signal, right? They're sending a signal, which we today call victim blaming, which is basically that, you know, they're sending a signal that these people deserve it. And, you know, that's why, like, I think it's so astonishing because it's so easy to denounce, you know, like some, you know, QAnon white supremacist goon who, like, you know, wanders into, you know, some uh, synagogue with with a machine gun. But, like, I think you need to sort of understand that, like, these things are not different. Like, attacking Jews who right, right. are practicing um, Judaism in some form is not different from attacking Jews who have the same hairstyle as you. Right, right. I mean, I, I think you put your finger on something very real, which is, like, modern-day liberalism, again, is very open and tolerant. But it's like, it's like this is probably a dated reference. We're, we're probably old enough. We're both old enough to, to get it. But like, the, the, the Benetton ad notion of diversity, right? People of all shapes and colors all consuming and acting exactly the same way. It's this sort of- bizarre... <laughs> All who are wearing the same shirt. We're wearing the same <laughs> shirt, right? And it's, um, if you grew up in quote unquote true diversity, I was raised in Miami, which was a total zoo of everything, right? Cubans, uh, Haitian Creole, like it was a tower of Babel of people and cultures. And it wasn't always polite or nice. People were very in your face about things, but it was really diverse. I mean, damn it, you'd run across anything and anybody and it was, it was nuts, right? It was not the case that everyone's following these polite little speech codes, right? Um, it was, but it was a little rough and tumble. Um, and nowadays, yeah, I mean, if, I, well, so what would you consider, for example, here's what I would take as one example of your Hanukkah anti-Semitism. If you look at the way that like, I mean, the Hasids are one example or just Orthodox Jewish life in general. Uh, you know, the only article the New York Times will ever publish about Orthodox Judaism is about people leaving it, right? And being glad they left, right? <laughs> or if you look at things like the American, yes. or if you look at the American remake of Shtisel, which is a pretty good series, it's an Israeli show that looks at the, the Orthodox community. Like the American version yes. is totally different. Like they've completely deleted the whole the whole thing. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's ridiculous. They turn into this Romeo and Juliet thing about the Orthodox guy and the secular woman, or maybe it's vice versa, but whatever. But it's not about. Oh God, <laughs> I know yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that, but that sounds horrible. <laughs> Well, it hasn't been made yet, but that's supposedly the premise. Um, and so, or, nice. or even unorthodox, which has the same antics from from Schissel, But again, it's about an, it's about an orthodox woman basically leaving it all behind in secular Berlin. And isn't it wonderful? Um, yeah. So, I, I, would you consider that to be part of the the Hanukkah anti-Semitism that you're? I mean, you know, look. I mean, the problem with this is like you can take any individual example and be like, well, this is just this one artist's expression and whatever. But I think what you're getting at is something much deeper, which is like, what kind of stories are we likely to publicize and make popular? Right. That's what it's not like what I'm not saying. I'm not claiming that, like, you know, there aren't stories that should be told about people leaving Orthodox life. Like, you know, I'm not saying that. But I'm but I think that there's a reason that these things are as popular as they are, I think, is what you're hitting on. And that's that's the kind of piece. And there's this gaslighting going on where we're pretending that it's not that it's about something that it's not. So, um, you know, for example, like, oh, you know, this whole debate about like, well, anti-Zionism is different from anti-Semitism. It's like, okay, you know, like, yeah, there probably is some like, you know, college seminar somewhere in which that's true. But like, you know, when some teenage girl posts Shabbat Shalom on TikTok and then is flooded with like comments, which are like, you know, free Palestine, U-B-I-T-C-H, like, that's not a conversation about Israel. Right, like, right, that's not right. what's happening there, <laughs> right? And right. I'm not going to pretend that, that that's what's happening because that's not what's happening. But the, but the know, weird tangent, I mean, maybe this is yeah, getting a little bit too... Yeah, go ahead. This is getting a little too Jewy, but if you look in, 
and again, I've only been inside this, you know, this community in this world very briefly, maybe your experience is very different. But even if you look among American Jews, their willingness to equate, their willingness to, to, to put Israel at the center of the Jewish experience, even if you've never been there or whatever, I think varies by denomination to some degree, right? And again, you've said a lot of things here that I think maybe, I don't know, in a reform synagogue, maybe would not be the case, or they, they would think otherwise, right? They, they wouldn't equate their Jewish identity with the state of Israel as it exists today. No, and I wouldn't equate my my Jewish identity with the state of Israel either. But I would be lying if I claimed that that wasn't an, an important component of it. I would be lying if I said that the way I would be Jewish in a, a universe where the state of Israel didn't exist would be the same as it is now. It wouldn't be. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, none of those things would be the same. They're enormously important to me. Um, you know, and so that's sort of like this, I, you know, and so, but what I'm pushing back against and which I actually do think that like, you know, Jews have been in many parts of the, you know, both political and religious spectrum recognizes like, there's a lot of gaslighting going on here. Like there are, you know, like this is not about like, you know, what should happen in politics between Israelis and Palestinians. Like that's not like, are those conversations happening? Yeah, they are. Are and by sincere and, and well-meaning people. Um that's I'm not like claiming that that's not ha- that the that, that that's not a conversation people should be having. But like that's not what we're seeing in like, you know, like like yeah, yeah, no, no. like right, if right. you like, you know, hashtag yeah, yeah. free yeah. Palestine is generally not actually a about Israel or Palestine, like that's yeah, yeah, and no, that, no, that's no, what I'm pushing back outside. against. Like I'm not like you know I'm not that, and that's the piece that like, and that's that's where I'm talking about the gaslighting. Um, you know, it's kind no, of no, like I, you know, I, I, like I, when the you know, it's like I don't think those conversations are any more about Israel than or Palestine or whatever you want to, however you want to describe this issue. Those conversations are not any more about Israel than like conversations about blood libels in the Middle Ages were about like whatever toddler happened to drown and whatever no, toddler no, drowned no, in the I, river. I totally, like nobody actually cared about that toddler, right? That's the problem. No, yeah. I, I, I I totally get it, but, but but you're looking at it. So, but I'm what I'm focusing on is in some sense is the the internal Jewish dialogue. I mean, yes, I agree. The outside pressure obviously is 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 gaslighting all that, but even. Consider the debate that has existed inside Judaism for centuries. This is hardly the first time between sort of universalism and particularism, just broadly, and of uh, and of the religion, and also the centrality of of, of again of, of Israel, the state as it exists today, like Jews actually controlling a square. On, well, it's not a square, but whatever, a shape on the map, versus the sort of diaspora rabbinical post temple Judaism that has characterized Jewish life for two thousand years, right? And the fact. I don't know. If you, well, anyhow, we're towards the end of the interview, and this is, we could go on here for, it feels like we've gone here for a while. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's, at least to me, there's an unresolved internal Jewish narrative around it, right? Like you look at somebody, just to cite an example, who again, is also polemical, somebody like Peter Beinart, right? Who is not, shall we say, resoundingly pro Israel, <laughs> right? Um, but he, he lives, as far, as far as I understand, I think he's an Orthodox Jew and he's a practicing Jew and the whole thing. And to my very naive take on it, right, it's almost like it, it's, he believes in Western liberalism and Judaism existing within that Western, Western liberal paradigm, and he critiques Israel from within that paradigm. And I think a lot of people who critique Beinart would say, you know, liberalism is not going to save the Jews. Israel needs to exist. You know, the Temple Mount is still important, on and on and on, right? And it just seems that there's some there's some tension there, at least. I, anyway. Oh, I mean, there's, there's obviously, like, intense debate about all of these things in the Jewish community. I don't think there's anything that 
there's like nothing in Jewish life that there isn't intense debate about in the Jewish community. <laughs> <Right. laughs> like, yeah, you know, like you know, I could tell you, I could like sit here and list who I agree with and disagree with on these issues, but like. You know, of course there's intent. I mean, it's like the most absurd thing. They're like, you know, oh, we can have, you know, isn't it legitimate to criticize Israel? It's like, have you ever been to Israel? Like, there's like nobody, you know, Jewish, Arab, Christian, Muslim, whatever. Like, there's nobody who lives there who isn't criticizing it all day long. Right? Like, like you know, it's like, come on. Like, that's right, not right. like, that's not what this is about. Like, that's not, you know, obviously there's vast debates about this. Right. And they're like, and it's not just like, oh, we agree to disagree. There are vast existential debates about all these things within the Jewish community and right. have been for right. thousands of years. And so, you know, but that's like, that is a different phenomenon than, you know, like, right. like, you know, being ratioed on Twitter by yoga instructors who are but, like, you know well, what I'm but, saying? Well, like, that's really, collide, no, those are two different things. Well, but, but, and that's but, the distinction I want to well, make. Well, but, but, they, but they collide at some point, right? I mean, that was Lyle's point in his essay. They, they collide. The internal Jewish narrative and the external narrative at some point meet because these aren't divergent media worlds anymore, right? And uh, right, that's, that's the thing. If, if I take the anti-Beaner position and suddenly the outside world views me as a bloodthirsty Zionist, those worlds have collided, right? I'm, I'm participating in what seems like an internal Jewish debate, but I still get free Palestine on my Twitter stream, right? <laughs> I mean, right? yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably can't be avoided, if that's what you're saying. Like, I mean, right. because that, I mean, there right. isn't, right, because there isn't, there's all, there's, the internal Jewish debate is, like, being observed. If that's what you're talking about, right? And right. being, and I would, I, I would argue yes. being exploited. Well, right. I mean, Beener publishes in a lot of mainstream publications like The Atlantic, and a lot of his antagonists publish in typically Jewish-only or primarily Jewish publications, which are a little bit different. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, okay. yeah, anyway, there's <laughs> a lot we could talk about. But I mean, I think that it, I think yeah. it does go to sort of the, the premise of my book, which is that, like, you know, people love dead Jews and are, like, extremely uncomfortable with living ones. Right? I mean, there is a deep, right. deep discomfort with living Jews. And that's sort of, to me, is what's interesting, right. right? Again, as I said, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. And that, that to me, is really interesting. It's like, why is there this deep discomfort? And that's sort of the, that, you know, to me, I think is very revealing about, not about the Jewish community, but about a larger, the role that Jews play in a non-Jewish imagination. Well, because Anne Frank is far more unambiguous than like Iron Dome. <laughs> Iron Dome is complicated and confusing and weird and we don't know what to do and it's real. And the other thing is a very nice story about, you know. I mean, that's the nice, problem. It's, it's not a nice been... story. That's the right, problem. Nice right. And right. the Iron Dome well, is yeah. trying to like make it so we don't have more dead people. <laughs> right. These stories right. are, they well, are that's related. The that's the connection you and I make. That's not the, 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 these stories that's are related. Right. So, but cool. in a way well, that people you, are not willing to discuss. So that's, yeah. No, well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Cool. Well, thank you, Dara. It's been a fascinating conversation. You talk, uh, you talk faster than I do, which is amazing. <laughs> you might be your first for the full request. <laughs> you can play it back per- on a, on a you know, half speed or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Well, I think, I think a lot of the pull request people are the sort of people who play things at 2x or 1.5. <laughs> so this works speed. for them. And yeah. I always say, okay. like, you don't have to do it with me. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you, Dara. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll end the room at this point. And um, if I can manage to edit this into textual format, because like, <laughs> if it doesn't break the, uh, the Substack link limit, I might, I might publish some textual version of this. Thanks so much for your time. Again, I, I totally love your book. And I would, I would encourage everyone to, to buy the book. It's, um, 
you know, it's funny, you don't see too many books that are collections of essays anymore. It seems to be like a, a genre that is not so popular, but it seems very suited to the internet era, right? Because these could be 12 very long blog posts that could be coalesced into a book. Um, in any case, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time. Dara. Thank you. Okay. See ya. All right, thanks so much for having I'm gonna, me. I'm going to close the room. Just hang around for one second on Zoom, okay. please, Sarah. Sure.